church. Welcome to everyone, especially our newcomers. Man, you guys look good this morning. You look real good. Yeah, I got to take a picture. You guys look really good. Let's go. All right, on the count of three, I'm going to do panel. All right, you guys look so good. Ready? Count of three, say cheese. One, two, three, cheese. Let's see how that turned out. It's good. Good job, guys. Good job. I like pictures. In fact, let me show you some pictures from um, a trip that we took as a church earlier this year when we went to Israel. Uh, we got to spend some good time on the Sea of Galilee. So here's uh, our team on the Sea of Galilee. It's the waters where Jesus walked. And uh, this sea is just full of life, fresh water, full of fish, full of activity, uh, just a beautiful sea. Then a few days later, we went down south. We traveled to another sea, and that's the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea. This guy's not dead. That's Rob Tang. But the sea is dead. Why? Because it is so salty. One of the saltiest bodies of water on earth that nothing can survive in it. In fact, they told us, don't stay in it for more than 20 minutes. It's that salty. So the question is, how is it that the Sea of Galilee, so fresh and full of life, and the Dead Sea, so dead, where nothing can live in it, can be two bodies of water in the same land. How is that possible? Well, simple. Let me show you. I'm going to show you a map. See, the Sea of Galilee has an inlet and it has an outlet. And so the Jordan River pours into the Sea of Galilee, and then the Sea of Galilee flows out into the southern part of the Jordan River. So it has an inlet and an outlet. It takes in and it pours out, takes in and it pours out constantly, and it keeps the water fresh. But the Dead Sea has an inlet but no outlet. The Dead Sea is a dead end. And so the same waters pour into the Dead Sea, but it goes nowhere, and it just sits there and does nothing but evaporates. And as the water evaporates, it leaves behind all the salt and all the minerals. That's why it is one of the saltiest bodies of water on earth. We want to be a people who are full of life. Amen? We want to have an inlet and an outlet. We want to be full of life. We want to be life-giving. We do not want to be dead on the inside. And so today we kick off a new series, and it's called Who's My Neighbor? Who's My Neighbor? And it's based off part of the greatest command ever, and that's to love your neighbor as yourself. We want to be people who pour out love. Because for the past six months, we, we've been in the series called What We Believe. And for six months, we've been poured into by the word of God and taking in doctrines of his word. Doctrines of the Trinity. Doctrines of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Doctrines of sin. Doctrines of salvation. Doctrine of, of the church. Doctrine of the last days. And so I pray that over the six months, you grew in your understanding and your knowledge of God and his word. I pray that really deepened your understanding and knowledge. But I pray that it doesn't just sit here because as important as what you know is what you do. And what you do ought to flow out of what you know. And so this series is, is our hope that we will take what we know and we would respond by loving and living out this love. Someone once said that knowing and not doing is just as good as not knowing. So we want to be people who know and do what we know. And so what I want to do is I want to turn you to Luke chapter 10 this morning. And 
look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I want to set the table for the next couple months as we talk about how to love our neighbors as ourselves. Okay? Let me pray, and then I'm going to invite you to open up to the book of Luke. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father God, I, I thank you so much for just the really good truth that you poured into us. In the past several months, as we looked into your word, God, we are filled with a better understanding of you. But I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't just people who be people who know a lot, but Lord, that we would love a lot. And people would know us by our love. And they would know that our love comes from what we know. So speak to us, Lord. And I pray that every heart listening, whether we know you or not, Lord, that by the end of this time, we would know you more. And I pray, God, that you would remind us of your grace and your goodness to us. And in response to that, we would do what we do. So speak to us now, Lord. Keep us free from distraction and other thoughts that are not present in your word. So bring us near. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if you have your apps or your Bibles, Luke chapter 10 is where we're going to be this morning. And let me set this up for you. Jesus is having this interaction with this lawyer. And by lawyer, we're not talking about like a court attorney, a trial lawyer. We're talking about an expert of the law. This is an expert of the Mosaic or the Jewish law. We know this as the Old Testament. And he, he's been studying this his whole life. And he goes up to Jesus and he tests Jesus. And here's how it goes. Luke 10, starting from 25. It says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he, Jesus, said to him in red letters, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, The lawyer said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and implied love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. And so this lawyer who has all this knowledge of the law and what the word of God says, he he wants to test Jesus to see how well he knows the law. He says, Jesus, how does one attain eternal life? And if, if you're familiar with the Socratic method, which a lot of rabbis used to use, is they would answer a question with another what? Question. Right? A Gentile once asked a Jew, why do Jews always answer questions with another question? You know what he said? He goes, why not? Why, what, what else should I say? And so Jesus does the same thing. How do you attain eternal life? Jesus asks a question back. What does the law say? In other words, you're the expert. How do you understand it? And so the expert in the law, the lawyer, loves this opportunity to kind of show off what he knows. And he boils the entire law into two verses, Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, soul, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus goes, bingo. Nailed it. Now go do that and you'll live. In other, in other words, live that out and you'll have eternal life. Now, I don't know if it's maybe a smirk on Jesus' face or maybe it's sarcasm in his tone or a sparkle in his eye. But something about that interaction, the lawyer is picking up. I, I don't think Jesus thinks I'm cutting it. 
Like, I don't think Jesus believes that I, I'm actually doing this and I'm worthy of eternal life. And he's starting to feel like, like insecure or like, well, why are you questioning me? And so he starts to try to justify himself. How do I know? Because that's what it says in verse 29. We go on. Luke tells us, but he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? And I think what the lawyer is trying to do is he's trying to prove that he lives out the law by trying to limit what the definition of a neighbor is. Because Jesus, if we can agree on who my neighbor is as opposed to who it isn't, then I'll show you that I'm living within those limits and I'm loving within those limits and I am worthy of eternal life. So he's trying to limit who his neighbor is. See, Jews felt obligated to, to love their fellow Jew, to take care of their fellow Jew financially, emotionally, relationally, whatever need they have, I'm obligated to love. That's who my neighbor is. So tell me, Jesus, who's my neighbor? And I'll show you that I've been loving him well. And I think this lawyer, he asks a decent question. It's a good question to ask. But I just think there's probably a couple more questions we need to ask in order to fully understand what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. So I would ask three questions, and I want to have all of us ask ourselves these three questions. In order to understand how do you love your neighbor as yourself, number one, we have to know what is love. Number two, who is my neighbor? And number three, how do I love myself? Because if I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, how is it that I love myself? So that's the roadmap for today. Let's start with the first question. If you're taking notes, write this down. Question number one, what is love? What is love? How many of you know that love is not necessarily just giving the person what that person wants or what that person asks for? That's not necessarily love. And I think especially the parents in here, you know this. right? You know that with your kids, sometimes love is tough love might be tough, but it's still love, right? How many parents in here would ever let a stranger stab your kid with a sharp object? I did. And it was the most painful thing for me to watch and sit through. It's when my first son, Evan, turned three months and he had to go to get his vaccination shots. And I was not prepared for this. I was not ready for this. When the doctor comes in and he takes his needle, this big old needle, and he sticks it in my son's thighs. And if you could be there in that room, you would feel my pain because my son's face turns red. He's screaming at the top of his lungs, tears shooting out of his face. And inside I'm like, ah, oh, why does he have to go through that? Here's a picture of Evan. I don't know if you can see it, but there's tears. Yeah, those are the tears coming out. This is post-shot. And if he could speak out loud, which he couldn't at the time, he'd probably say something like, Mommy, Daddy, why would you let this guy who I've never seen before stick a sharp needle into my thigh where it pierces my flesh and blood's coming out? Why would you do that? And if I could explain to a three-month-old, I'd say, because I love you. Because I love you, and if it means temporary pain for long-term protection against sickness and disease, then I will do that out of my love for you. And so whether it's painful or it's pleasant, we love by doing what we think is best for that other person. Isn't that right? 
what we think is best for that other person. Now, here's the problem we run into. What we think is best is often subjective. How many parents have differing ideas of what's best for their kids? Maybe as a parent, you might think it's better to uh, keep your kid out of one activity so they could focus on another activity. I'm not going to have you play baseball because I think basketball is best for you. Or maybe as a husband or a dad, you uproot your family from their friends and community to move them to a different state because in that state you have a better career opportunity where you could better provide for them and you think that's best for them. And maybe as a Christian, you'll give money to somebody who asks for it because you think that's best for them. That's just what we do. We, we, operate, best, we operate by thinking about what is best for this other person. But I want to challenge you. I, I believe Christian love ought to ask another question. Rather than what is best for you or what do I think is best for you, I think godly love asks the question, what is God's best for you? What is God's best interest? What is God's desire for this other person? I think that's the best, most helpful definition of godly love that I've heard. Desiring or seeking God's best for another. According to his word and what his word says or reveals about his character or his will, how, how can I see that play out in that other person's life? That's love. That's real love. You know, I, I used to serve in a Chinese church over 10 years ago, um, and it was in an affluent community. And that's a crazy mix right there because if you're in a Chinese community in an affluent neighborhood, you know that one of the highest priorities is education, academics. Now, I don't know if you guys know the Chinese grading scale. Do you guys know the Chinese grading scale? Let, let me help you understand what I'm talking about. If you get an A, what does that mean to a Chinese parent? You're average. <laughs> you're just average. Don't be proud. Would it, God, God forbid, what happens if you get a B? You're below average. You better shape it up. And then if you get a C, you can't come home. <laughs> you, you can't eat dinner. You can't eat dinner. And then this is where it gets serious because if you get below a C in a Chinese home, this is where the Chinese really comes out. You get a D, what happens? You don't come home. You don't come home. And then if you get an F, what happens? Huh, you find a new family. You're not my son. You find a new family, right? And this, this is how it is. I, I, I can say this because I'm Chinese, right? And it's true. But, but here in this church that I grew up in, as youth leaders, we would have this conversation with parents of the youth all the time. And the parents would come to us youth leaders and say, hey, would you help talk to my kids? Would you help them set their priorities straight? Because they always want to come to church and youth group on Friday nights, but they got to be home studying SAT. So can you help us tell them what's important? And so you imagine this tension in us as leaders when we want to honor the parents and we want to work with the parents. Yes, but at the same time, there's this question, what is God's best for them? What is God's best? Is God's best that they have a solid SAT score? Or a solid foundation in their faith. And we're always challenged with this question. What is God's best? I think as Christians when it means to love our neighbors. We ought to ask what is God's best interest? What is his desire or his will in their life? Not my interests. 
not their interests. But if it's not God's interest, it's not real love. So to love your neighbor is desiring God and seeking God's best in your neighbor's life. So that brings us to the second question. Question number two. If you want to write this in your notes, it's the same question the lawyer asked Jesus. So then who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And so Jesus answers his question by telling a story, a parable. And he says in verse 30, we pick up in verse 30, Jesus replied, So a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by to the other side. So we pause right there. A man... Most likely a Jewish man, since he's coming down from Jerusalem. That's where the temple is. That's where worship happens. He gets beaten, robbed, and left bloodied and bruised by these thieves on that road. And then along comes a priest also coming down from Jerusalem. Now the question is, who's the priest? Well, the priest is is the Jewish leader who's in charge of the temple sacrifices. And so you can be sure this priest knew the law full well. He knew it very well. He was at the top of the food chain. He was the religious leader of leaders. And as he's coming down, he sees this man half dead in the street, and it says he passed by him. Now, I know you're probably thinking in your head, you see this asphalt street. You see concrete sidewalks. He's walking down one sidewalk, and so he crosses the street to the other sidewalk to pretend like he doesn't see him. Get that out of your mind. Because that's not what the road from Jerusalem to Jericho looked like. This is what the road from Jerusalem to Jericho looked like. It's almost like a hiking trail. And so if you're coming down from Jerusalem and you see a man bloodied and bruised half dead in the middle of that road, you're not ignoring that. You're not pretending like you don't see that. There's no way you don't see that. In fact, if he passed by, he would have to carefully make his way around, perhaps risking falling off the side of the cliff or rolling down an embankment. Like he knew what he was doing. I'm avoiding this guy. And then Jesus goes on in verse 32. says, so likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So Levite comes and does the same thing, coming down from Jerusalem. Who's a Levite? Well, a Levite is part of the tribe of Levi, the one tribe of the 12 called to take care of temple services, to take care of temple order. They served in the temple just like a priest. So a priest was always a Levite, but not every Levite was a priest. It's kind of like saying all pastors are Christians, but not all Christians are pastors. And so this Levite also, like, like the priest, would know the law very well. He would know what the law says about temple worship. And as he's coming down from Jerusalem, he does the same thing. And he makes his way around carefully, intentionally avoiding this half-dead body in the middle of the road. Jesus goes on in verse 33. But then a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Wine was to serve as an antiseptic. Oil was to help in the healing process. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and 
took care of him. And the next day, meaning he stayed with him there that night, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And so here we have this Samaritan who sees the very same man, the the priest and the Levi saw, and I don't know if that Samaritan knew what race this guy was. I don't know if he knew that this was a Jewish man. The Bible doesn't tell us. But to be honest, I don't know if that mattered to the Samaritan. Right? It's not like the Samaritan sees him and says, oh my gosh, bro, you got blood and bruises all over your face. And so I can't tell, but what race are you? <laughs> like there's so much blood and bruises, I can't see through, but where do you worship? What religion are you? Because that matters if I want to proceed and give you any kind of aid. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't know what race or religion this guy is through the blood and the bruises. But do you know what he sees? Blood and bruises. You know what he recognizes? That this man is in need right now and I am obligated to love him. I am obligated to help him in this desperate need. And like a good neighbor, Samaritan is there. Samaritans there. He's there and he helps pick him up. He anoints him. He pays for him. He stays with him and he watches him heal. And so in Jesus' fashion, when Jesus tells a parable or a story, he's always dramatic. He draws these dramatic points. He uses a Levite and a priest, two men who would surely know the law of God, who knew it well, who spent their life making religious sacrifices, taking in religious knowledge. They should have been the ones who knew what to do. They knew the law of love, and yet they did nothing. Just poured in and went nowhere. And yet... In dramatic fashion, Jesus uses a Samaritan to be the hero of this story. Understand this, Jews and Samaritans, that's as much of a contrast as you can have. Their hatred for each other ran deep, and it went back far. It went back to the time of the Assyrian conquest when the Assyrians took over the northern kingdom of Israel. And at that time, all these foreigners, all these Gentiles came into Samaria and started intermarrying with the Jews in Samaria, intermingling with them, bringing in their pagan cultures, bringing in their idol worship, defiling the Jews. And so all the other Jews saw the Samaritans as unclean, impure half-breeds. Nothing good comes out of Samaria. They're filthy. It was said that that among their daily prayers that Jews would pray, God, may there be no Samaritans in the resurrection. In other words, may, may no Samaritan make it to heaven. You have to hate somebody to hope they don't make it to heaven. You have to hate someone to hope them into hell. May there be no Samaritan in the resurrection. That's how deep the hatred went. And yet, Jesus tells a story, and look what he forces the lawyer to observe. In 36, we pick up. Jesus asks him, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? What does the lawyer say? The one who showed him mercy. What is that? The one who showed him mercy. (laughs) That's right. You go, and you do likewise. 
When Jesus asked which of these three acted as a neighbor, the the Jewish lawyer who knew the law really well, expert in the law, couldn't even utter out the word Samaritan. He didn't want to hear that even come out of his mouth. So all he could say was, the one who showed mercy. The one who showed mercy. And yet he's the hero and the model in this story. When the lawyer was trying to limit who qualified as the neighbor whom he loved, whom he needed to love. What's Jesus doing? Jesus is using a Samaritan to blow the bounds off of the definition of neighbor. Jesus is saying that love has no bounds. Perfect love knows no limit. Doesn't matter what race or religion, what color or culture, what politics or popularity. Love knows no bounds. There is no limit to who your neighbor is. And so who is my neighbor? The answer is anyone and everyone whom God puts in your path who has a need, who's looking and desiring for God's best for them. It's anyone and everyone who is before you. And so a lawyer asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? I want to ask all of us and challenge all of us to ask that same question of of the Lord. God, who is my neighbor? Not just in the next several weeks as we go through the series, but right now, God, who's my neighbor? And, And yes, it's anyone and everyone, but specifically, Lord, speak to me. Bring to my attention, who's my neighbor? Maybe it's that EGR. You know that person where a little extra grace is required? That annoying, bothersome person that you can't stand? Maybe your neighbor is that person who deeply wounded you. Maybe 30 years ago or 30 minutes ago. Maybe it's that very difficult boss that you can't stand to see every day at work. Or maybe you're a boss and it's those people who work under you that you need to love better. Maybe it's the fatherless, the one needing foster care right now. Or maybe God's been prompting your heart to maybe adopt a fatherless child. Maybe it's the people in your community whom you would love to pretend like you don't see and cross the street. To avoid, or maybe it's people in the, 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 the nations, that one nation that God seems to keep on bringing to your attention, and perhaps He's calling you to love your neighbor. And maybe it's that gun toting, American flag waving, conservative Trump supporter in your office that you can't stand to look at. Or maybe it's that transgender, rainbow flag waving liberal progressive in your neighborhood that you don't like to look at? Who's your neighbor? Maybe it's those in Florida. And, and look out for some announcements to come. We're, we're talking about how we can go to Florida because there's people in need right now who have been hit by Hurricane Ian. Uh, look forward to that because we're going to go love our neighbors. But who, who is your neighbor? How's the Lord speaking to you right now? And I pray that in the coming weeks, God's going to challenge us. I believe he's going to lovingly force us to acknowledge who those people are, who that person is, and love them. 
as ourselves. And that brings me to one last question. How do I love myself? How do I love myself? If I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, how is it that I love myself? And the answer to that question, the answer is, well, quite naturally. We love ourselves quite naturally. We do that pretty well. With utmost importance, with great urgency, we give great attention to ourselves because we love ourselves. I took a great picture of you guys earlier. I want to show you the picture I took just, just before this message. So look at that. Don't you guys look beautiful? I told you you look beautiful. How do I know you love yourself? Because who are you looking for right now? <laughs> who are you looking for? Right? Where am I? How do I? Is my hair okay? Did I make it into the picture? You love yourself. You're the first person on your mind. That's okay. That's natural. We come into the world like that. When a baby is born, what does a baby do? Poops <laughs> and cries. But why does a baby cry? I hate to break this to you, Mom. I hate to break this to you, Dad. It's not because the baby's thinking about you. He's not so happy to see you. What's the baby crying for? Because I'm hungry. I need a nap. I need attention. I need changing. I, I. I, that's all the baby knows. And we're probably saying, come on, be, be kind. It's just a baby. They'll grow out of it. I don't know if we really grow out of that. I don't know. Like we grow up and we want to love, right? We want to love sacrificially. We want to fall in love. So we look for someone to love. But in that search, who do you really love? Yourself. Why? Because when you look for someone, what are you looking for? Somebody who's going to make me happy. How does this person satisfy me? How does this person complete me? How does this per person add value to my life? And if I can't say that this person adds value to me, then I don't want that person. And so we think about ourselves. And say, well, when we have kids, that's when I come, become totally selfless, totally sacrificial, right? Wrong. I mean, I believe, parents, I know you're sacrificial. I know you love your kids. You'll do anything for them. But there's an elephant in the room that we don't like to address. There's an element in your parenting that we don't like to say out loud. It's the element of self. Because as loving and sacrificial as you are, and I believe you are, we often think about ourselves and we raise our kids in light of ourselves. How does my kid reflect me? How does their success on the field or their success in education reflect me as a parent? Right? Like, I'll tell you the truth. I, I pray all the time, God, please, please help my children to, to be good children. Help them to be respectful. Help them to be kind. Help them to be considerate about it. I pray that, and I've asked myself, why do I care so much about that? And I'll be honest with you, a big reason why I care is because it reflects how I am as a parent and what people think about me. We think about that. How many of you have ever seen a bumper sticker on someone's car that proudly says, my coworker's kid is student of the month? <laughs> Who would ever put that? Nobody would put that sticker on your car, but we'll put my kid is student of the month. Why? Well, because I'm proud of my kid. Yeah, but it says that is my kid. It says something about me as a parent. So we think about ourselves all the time. And some of you guys are saying, Pastor Greg, this doesn't apply to me. I'm a person who actually needs to love myself more. I don't love myself very much. And I'll try to say this carefully and gently. And I don't want to make any blanket statements. 
But I think sometimes people don't love themselves enough because they love themselves too much. Why? Why don't I love myself? Because I'm not pretty enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not funny enough. I don't compare to so-and-so. And because we have this egocentric focus on ourselves and we're constantly thinking about ourselves and how we compare, that tells me I'm not good enough, so I don't love myself. I'm not where I want to be. I'm not who I would love to be. And so all I'm saying in all these examples is we, we, we think about ourselves and give attention to ourselves very naturally. With great urgency, with great priority, we think about how do I need to take care of myself? What needs do I have? And how can I best take care of those needs? And I'm not saying that's wrong. It's not inherently evil. That's just how we are. We were brought into the world like that. But it's wrong if that's all we ever think about. And that's why I think the greatest command causes us, forces us to take that love and energy we devote to ourselves to devote it somewhere else. How do I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? And how do I love my neighbor as myself? It's forcing us to think about others beyond ourselves. In this story, Jesus is so masterful as a teacher, right? He, he uses a Samaritan to be the neighbor to the guy in the street. The guy who's half dead is a Jewish man. That's masterful teaching. Because Jesus could have flipped it. He could have made the victim, the half dead man, a Samaritan. And he could have told the story, as probably most of us would tell the story, there's a Samaritan half dead in the street. There's three Jews who come along. The two pass him by who, whom you would expect to help him. And yet the third Jew actually went out of his way to help him. Who is the better of the three Jews, right? You could teach it like that. But why does Jesus flip the script? Why does he make a Jewish man beaten, half dead, and desperately in need? And I believe Jesus is forcing this lawyer, an expert in the law, who must have spent a lot of time in the temple in Jerusalem, who's walked down that road many times from Jerusalem. He's forcing him to put himself in that person's position. If I were that man who just came from worship and I was beaten and robbed and desperately in need, half dead, bloodied and bruised, how would I want the person passing by to respond? And I think if any of us are like any human being in that position, I would want somebody to help me. I would want someone to lift me. I would want someone to clothe me. I would want someone to attend to me. I would want someone to heal me. Wouldn't we all? And he's forcing this lawyer to put yourself in that Jewish man's position. How would you want to be treated? Now go and do likewise. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so in answer to those three questions, what is love? Who is my neighbor? And how do I love myself? I'd, I'd sum it like, up like this. I'm going to summarize it in one statement. Here's the takeaway truth. I'll put it up for you. I'd say this. So when we see any person in need and we act with urgency and priority to love them by seeking God's best for them. I'm going to read it again. If you need to write it down or take a picture, do what you got to do. This is the takeaway. When we see any person in need, that's your neighbor, 
And we act with urgency and priority because that's how we love ourselves. And we love them by seeking God's best for them because that's what true love looks like. Anyone in need, we act with urgency and priority to love them by seeking God's best for them. So in this series, we're going to talk a lot about our neighbors. We're going to determine who they are. Who's God bringing to our attention? And how can we pour out love as we would love ourselves? How do we treat them like we would want to be treated? How can we seek God's best for them? And so as I close, in closing, I want to ask one more question. I want to ask one more question. What is this passage really about? What's it really about? Because if you think that this story is actually about doing good and loving your neighbors as the primary point, I think you're missing the point. Is doing good and loving your neighbors important elements and important application of the story? Yes, that's why we talked about it. But that's not the primary point. It's kind of like in the game of chess. In the game of chess, if you think that the primary point is to collect as many of the opponent's pieces as possible, you're missing the point of the game of chess. Is that an important element to collect other pieces of the opponent's pieces? Yes, that's an important element. But what's the essence of chess? The aim, the goal is essentially to get one piece. That's the key. That's the point of chess. Don't miss the point. You're going to lose. And in this story, it's not about doing good and loving your neighbors that Jesus is trying to get to this lawyer. What, what Jesus is trying to do, he's trying to expose to this lawyer who thinks he knows the law and lives out the law. He's trying to expose how, fall, how, how far he falls short of the law. How imperfect he actually is. He had this disdain and this hatred for the Samaritan. As much as he loved the Jews, he hated the Samaritan. And Jesus was exposing to him how imperfect his heart and his life really was. Tim Keller suggests that Jesus was teaching in this story that real love begins when we recognize that we don't really love. That we are incapable of truly loving until we recognize we are incapable of truly loving. And if you think you could attain eternity by doing good, we'll always fall short until we realize that none of us are perfectly good. That's the point of this story. Every religion is so different from the gospel of Christianity because every religion will tell you that you could attain eternity. And that's the point of this story. Eternal life is the point. Remember the, the question that started this whole conversation. The lawyer asked Jesus, teacher, what must one do to attain eternal life? This is all about eternal life. And where every other world religion will say you could attain eternal life by doing, right? Do this, do that, do this, do that. The gospel will tell you that's a bunch of doo-doo. That, that's just a bunch of doing. You're not saved by what you do. The gospel will say you're saved by what's been done. What's been done? 
that Christ by his grace and his love has already done the deed by dying on the cross for you. It's when we recognize that, that I was the one half dead. Half dead in that I'm physically alive but spiritually dead. I'm the one desperately in need. I'm the one bloodied and bruised spiritually. And yet Jesus is the good Samaritan. He was the one who was neighborly to us. The Bible says in Romans that while we were dead in our trespasses, enemies of God, while we were still sinners, what happened? Christ died for us. He picked us up. He banished our wounds. He anointed us. He paid the price. And by his wounds, we are healed. And it starts there when we realize that Jesus is the good Samaritan in the story. This story is about how one attains eternal life. And like in the game of chess, there's a lot of elements to the story. And, and yes, we do good and we love our neighbors as ourselves. But don't miss the point. There's one thing in essence, one primary priority of the story. It's one piece that we need. And it's the king. We need Jesus. We need King Jesus to rescue us. To save us and deliver us. Do not miss the point. We're going to talk over these next several weeks about loving our neighbors. But understand this. We don't love our neighbors to get saved. We get saved. Then we go and love our neighbors. And it's when we keep coming back to this gospel. We're reminded of his grace. We receive the help of God. Then and only then can we go and do likewise. We need Jesus. Only then can we love our neighbor as ourselves. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your heads with me? And I want to lead you into prayer and then into praise. And I want to start there. We need Jesus. And there might be some of you listening right now from home or maybe you're here and you don't, you don't know Jesus yet. You haven't given him your heart. I want to start by that, and I'm just going to say it. You need Jesus. How can I say that with confidence? Because that's God's best for you. That's God's intention for you. His word says that we are all dead. We are all perishing spiritually. But he gave us Jesus to give you life. You need Jesus. We start there, and I want to invite you today, right now, to give your heart to him. The Bible says all it takes is faith. Nothing you do is a bunch of doo-doo. It's what you believe. That Christ has done it for you on the cross. He paid for your sin. He closed that gap. He was a neighbor to you. He was your good Samaritan. And he wants to lift you up. He wants to heal you, bandage up your wounds, and see you live. So I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And just commit your heart to him. And express faith pray something like this. Father God, I thank you that I don't need to try to get saved. That Christ has done the work. He died on the cross so that I would be rescued. So that my sins would be forgiven. So that my wounds would be healed. And that I would be able to live from this day forward into eternity. I accept what you did on my behalf. I accept it gladly. 
And so help me, God, from this day forward to live following after Jesus. Help me to take what I now know and what's true of me and help me live it out in love. Teach me in weeks to come, forever and ever, until I'm with you. Teach me what it looks like to love God and to love others. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we thank you with all our hearts and, and all we could do is, is respond and sing and worship. We're so thankful, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.